Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Word came down yesterday that Matt Lauer, the longtime co-host of NBC's Today Show, was fired by the network for inappropriate sexual behavior. A few hours later, it was Garrison Keillor, the retired host of Prairie Home Companion, who said he was fired by Minnesota Public Radio for inappropriate behavior. That means more than 50 men in entertainment, media, and politics have been accused of sexual harassment, assault, or rape since Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was named by numerous women for sexual misconduct on several levels. Are we in the midst of a turning point of how society views, treats, and responds to sexual misconduct? Joining us for this portion of the program today is Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Officer with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. And if you have a question or a comment like to add to the conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Kristen, it would seem as though we as a society have reached a watershed moment when it comes to sexual harassment and assault. Have we? I can only say I hope so. Um, I think we have hit a watershed moment in, in terms of people feeling like it's okay to disclose finally, but whether or not we really make um, changes to how we behave and interact with one another and set standards in our workplaces and schools and everywhere else, that that remains to be seen. We, we need to, to wait to see if we really learn our lessons from this and do it differently. What is different now? There's a couple things that are different right now. Um, I really believe that social media has given people a way to connect with one another in uh, ways that we never had before. So if you think about, like we know group therapy is a very effective tool to help survivors of sexual violence because it's an opportunity to talk to other people and you realize I'm not alone. This happens to other people. It wasn't my fault. The way I've been feeling and dealing with it, um, it's normal. I'm not crazy. Uh, it, it gets rid of the isolation that goes with being the victim of these kinds of crimes. Social media has taken that to a whole new level. And so uh, survivors are able to see um, other people, even total strangers, talking about what happened to them, gets rid of the isolation, and they feel empowered to speak up. And then when you have celebrities doing it, people that you admire and revere, it can make you feel like, well, gosh, if they can do that and, and risk their their career or the you know having the whole nation talk about them, maybe it's okay for me to do it in, in my family or in my community. When I ask about uh, being a watershed moment, one of, and this is uh, you know a, a definite that we can point to, is is that the nation is having a conversation about it yes. now. I mean, it, it, it's unfortunate that it takes incidents like this, but everyone is talking about it now. Yeah, and, and not just talking about it, but talking about it in the right ways. So first of all, we're talking about the full spectrum of um, sexual misconduct. So I think a lot of times in the past, we've really focused on only criminal acts and is it criminal or isn't it criminal and we get into all this stuff about you know the courts and the police and why don't you report etc this is really helpful and it's showing like you know inappropriate comments can make a place feel hostile when you're exposed to that in a repeated way it 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 limits your ability to feel like you know that you're safe in the world um it may stir up like something somebody verbally says to you may bring up things that happened physically to you you know years ago and it's it's really expanding how um there is a full spectrum of things some of them absolutely are criminal and legal lots of them are things that we have given a pass we We've turned to as entertainment. We make jokes out of it. And, and what we're seeing now is it's really not funny. People have been hurt by this, um, and it creates an environment where people will use that type of thing to justify real behavior. So talking about the full spectrum of behavior is important, and we're talking about the fact as well that doing nothing and staying silent about it as a bystander 
enables these things to continue. And that that's like the conversation that we've really needed to have. So, so we're, we're finally hearing people talking about the importance of addressing smaller infractions early on and immediately. And you want to have um, a, a response in the workplace or in the school or wherever you are that, that's appropriate for the level. So you don't need to fire somebody for an inappropriate joke necessarily, um, but you want to address it right away because you want to set the tone. We're not going to tolerate anything along those lines here. If you don't address the low-level stuff, it becomes a slippery slope for the higher-level stuff, and then it becomes more and more difficult to, to intervene. Something else that is very noticeable about uh, the period that we're we're going through right now is that uh, the victims are being believed. Yes. Many times when I would have you on the program and we've talked about sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual harassment, anything inappropriate, very often it was almost up to the victim. And that's one of the reasons that many didn't speak out. It seems though now, uh, especially when it comes to these well-known men, that many victims are being believed. Yeah. What changed? Yeah. Well, um, in some ways, that's a great question. I, I think it's in part cumulative that we have been over the past couple of years, I think, coming back to this issue more and more and more, we're seeing how, how prevalent uh, sexual violence is in our culture. So I don't th- I think every time we go through one of these periods, it's not as shocking as it was maybe five years ago. When we never talked about it. So there, there's a little bit of that. The more you realize the stuff is real and prevalent, then the easier it is to believe it when you hear it. I also think that some of these cases that have been coming forward, there, there's good corroboration that you have multiple people um, sharing very similar experiences. We've had investigative reporters collect a whole lot of information that uh, lends a lot of credibility to to the um, to the reports, and that's coming out over and over and over again. I, I think that the um, the overall effect of that is that we're seeing, you know, what we've always known: most people don't lie about experiencing these kinds of crimes, and on the flip side. People that that perpetrate these kinds of of behaviors do lie about it and say that they never did. So I, I think that that has really come to light with with all these things being discussed and all the information that's been shared. You know, I mentioned in the introduction that this kind of got uh, started with uh, Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. the Hollywood uh, producer, and. You know, I've heard a number of people say that well, one of the reasons that it was believable for Harvey Weinstein is that, first of all, it was so well-known. There were so many people mm-hmm. in Hollywood who talked about it. So so many other well-known people came out and said, this happened to me. Kind of started the whole Me Too uh, thing on, on, on social media. But there was the, the, the belief that, okay, we know we've heard about the casting couch for decades. Yep. Uh, so this doesn't surprise us. You know, now, now we have a number of women coming out and saying, here's what happened to me. And there's the creepiness factor to it mm-hmm. that a lot of people say, you know what? That guy looks like someone who ju- his personality is such. Now, you know, we're not here to judge someone's personality, but I, I think that's kind of a factor in all of this. Well, there there can be some indicators. I mean, somebody who uh, behaves in a way that, you know, has a lot of uh, entitlement and a huge ego and doesn't feel like they need to apologize for things and seems like they, they get whatever they want, whether it's you know, a, a criminal activity or, or just, you know, whatever they're doing, that, then you can you can see a trajectory of how um, pressuring people for, for sex or taking it or, or and being harmful rolls into the way, you know, it, fit, it fits and aligns with some of the other behaviors that, that you see that person demonstrating. So th- there is something to that, too, that it, it's... Um, some of the people who who have been um, accused of doing these things, you know, it, it, it fits. It sounds believable. So that it's a smaller uh, hurdle to get over. I, I think one thing we have to start talking about, though, it's, it's easy to pay attention to, you know, Hollywood and um, journalists and people that are on our, our televisions every day in our homes. But to remember that this stuff is happening in our communities with, um, you know, people that aren't famous and um, people are being exploited because they need affordable housing or because they need to work two jobs and they're working a night shift where they're really vulnerable or because they're undocumented and afraid to to come forward and ask for help. So, you know, we have to keep in mind that um, while having um, the the lid blown off this stuff with public figures, um, people that we know and relate to, is is uh, really eye-opening. We have to keep our eyes open to all the rest of the people in our communities that are experiencing these things and um, don't feel like they have a voice and, and they're people that we take for granted and 
and, and seem invisible to us. You know, we have some precedent for this. I think back over the years when we've talked about several high-profile high cases. Ray Rice, for uh, who played for the Baltimore Ravens, uh, that uh, you know, was caught on on video videotape of him uh, uh, assaulting his his I guess girlfriend then, but uh, ended up being his wife. That started a conversation, uh, a bigger conversation about domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember having you on the program talking about it. You know, it, why is it that we need these high-profile cases? And I, and I guess the question I asked then is, okay, we talked for a while. Uh, the NFL reacted. I mean, the NFL has many uh, monetary supports, financial supports for your organization, mm-hmm. some of the projects you're involved in. Mm-hmm. So they tried to respond. Mm-hmm. But my question is, do they um, are these things long-lasting when there was a Ray Rice situation? We talked about domestic violence. Do those things carry over, or is this just a period where it's getting a lot of attention and will go away once the be- next big news cycle comes up? Right. So that's why I said we have to wait and see. Like, I I think um, the NFL did good stuff. They didn't just give money as a as a PR you know move, but they they cleaned up their internal policies. They institutionalized training. They have uh, enforced the policies that they put in place. Um, you know, we, we've seen this recently with Uber, same, same kind of thing, that they went through um, some really intensive uh, changes in leadership, changes in training for their executives, changes in um, training people at their call center so that they are, they're responding appropriately when they get complaints that come in. And now they're partnering with victim service agencies to enable us to do a better job, um, but also to help um, them do their jobs better and, and put protections in place. So if you have an institution that, that says, you know, gosh, there's all this stuff going on, we better look at ourselves. When we do that, then yes, we're making lasting change. And there's anybody can learn their lesson from this. I feel like any employer, this is the opportunity for you to check the culture where you are, check the policies about what you do, whether or not you're enforcing them, whether or not you're enabling your low level and middle managers to enforce them. That needs to be the expectation. You want everybody to enforce the the environmental and behavioral expectations. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Office with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. We are talking about the period we are in right now as a society with a lot of high-profile men being accused uh, accused of inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace, outside the workplace, it, just in general. And uh, the conversation that that has generated about what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, and people taking a look at themselves. Our guest, again, is Kristen Hauser. If you'd like to give us a call, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. We have uh, a Facebook page where you can leave, WITF's Facebook page, where you can leave a question or a comment. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And I have to say that we only have uh, Kristen for a few more minutes, so I'm going to try to, I have a lot of questions here. And One, I see that we have a couple callers here, and I just kind of, along the the same lines, and I'd like to just kind of squeeze um, their questions or their comments in into uh, one question I'm going to ask myself, and that has to do with politics. Both of them are asking about. Uh, it seems as though um, you know those being targeted. Mention, there's one who mentions that the media types being targeted. You know, is this coming from a right wing source, a, a conservative source? Then we have another who's talking about the president, about uh, the Trump effect, and uh, whether you know. This is coming out because of the comments that uh, President Trump was caught making on tape. Is there a political aspect to this? No. Women are fed up. And that's not political uh, in terms of party affiliation. Uh, It's political in terms of um, 
you know, the politics that govern like the the rights and and the enforcement of your rights as a human. Um, but but you know, if we think about it, none of these it's, these behaviors are not new. What's new is finally talking about it, believing victims, and responding appropriately. And um, I I think that we sell ourselves short if we want to try to give credit to one party or another or have a conspiracy theory about one party or another. Handling these things appropriately benefits all of us. So let's take the politics out and just do what's right, because this ruins the workplace for everybody. I mean, even if you're not the, the target of harassment, it feels tense to you. It, it can um, create waves in the workplace. It makes it difficult to do your work. Many people uh, feel stuck in the place of they're afraid to speak up for the person who, who needs assistance because they might get re- uh, repercussions for that, but on the flip side, they feel bad about doing nothing. We lose employees from this, you know. So, like the cost to business is is huge, and the cost to individual families that are relying on on income is huge. We need to address these things because it benefits all of us. And I, this all bubbling to the surface. Um, there have been so many things that have been high profile that have happened that have empowered people to talk about what their real life experiences are. And like I said, I just think the bottom line is people are, are they're fed up. It's time to do it different. Uh, let's take a phone call from uh, Susan in Lancaster. Susan, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. I'm just wondering with all of the news and you said there were 50 plus, you know, high profile people who have lost their jobs or been reprimanded. If, uh, if your guest is seeing, you know, more on a local level, um, you don't hear the news. I mean, are there people um, who are empowered and who have come forward, you know, more locally? Are people losing their jobs and being reprimanded? All right. Thank you very much for your call. That's a great question because, you know, somebody losing their job isn't necessarily something that makes the headlines if they're not a public figure. So um, I don't know of anybody currently in the local market um, that, that's had repercussions like that. But, you know, I, I think that we have to get back to uh, what are the values of, of uh, employers anywhere. Uh, if you have somebody that is really creating a hostile workplace and, and victimizing somebody else and behaving inappropriately, it's absolutely correct for you to, to fire that person. So, you know, if that is going on in workplaces, I do hope that uh, employers take appropriate action. I want to jump around on some of these topics. Angela Lansbury, and I can say, honestly, this is the first time I've mentioned Angela Lansbury on uh, Smart Talk in uh, the 10 years we've been on the air. The 92-year-old actress, she was criticized for reportedly saying making themselves attractive had backfired for women and they must sometimes take blame uh, now she's not the only one who has said something to this effect that uh, women when they leave for work in the morning or wherever they're going in the morning that uh, they make themselves attractive they try to make themselves look as as good as they can mm-hmm. so they should be taking some of the blame for the attention that they get I think that that does a huge disservice, first of all, to men. It's sort of insinuating that uh, they men can't, can't, control, they can't themselves. control themselves, right, which right. is not true. Most men do control themselves and behave appropriately. So totally off base. Um, and, and also we have to keep in mind um, that might seem to be true on the surface when high profile profile people who are actresses or models or, you know, whatever are coming forward. But again, you know, that does not apply to most people. You know, people who are working in service industries, who are cleaning hotel rooms, who are um, working in kitchens, uh, they're not getting all dolled up to go to work. And yet they experience these crimes at at very high levels. You know, uh, field workers uh, experience huge amounts of, of sexual harassment and sexual violence while they're on the job. This doesn't happen to you because of what you look like. This happens because somebody sees a vulnerability and exploits it. Uh, This is about the offenders making choices about who they're targeting, when they're doing it, and what they're doing. It it is 100% the uh, responsibility of, of the perpetrator to not do those things. And I also should mention that uh, Angela Lansbury followed up after the criticism. Uh, she said there's no excuse whatsoever for men to harass women in an abusive sexual manner. So you know, she obviously <laughs> online uh, social media, she took a, a lot of heat for that. Right. Uh, 
you know, one of the issues that your organization has dealt with and uh, a lot of others in, in Pennsylvania is statute of limitations. For rape and sexual assault, uh, there may be a legal statute of limitations right. in some states. Here in Pennsylvania, we do have one. Uh, but those are considered violent crimes, mm-hmm. and uh, a perpetrator could be pursued, but for harassment or inappropriate behavior that may not meet the level of breaking the law, how far back do we go in should someone who said or did something inappropriate 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, be held accountable? Um, that's a great question. I, I think it depends on how the knowledge of that impacts their role today. You know, so that I think that's part of it with, with public figures that um, it does matter. And, and, and frankly, I, I also think it's unfair to say, well, you know, we're going to take it seriously if it happened recently, but we're going to turn a blind eye to the fact that there's a 20 year track record. Like that 20 year track record is important because it, it, it demonstrates that this is a ingrained problem in a person. We're not talking about a single allegation from eons ago that, you know, suddenly now you're going to um, pay some consequences. I think, too, people need to get out of the weeds about whether or not it's criminal and why don't people go to the police. A lot of the stuff we're talking about is not even codified necessarily as a criminal act. Some things are, like um, indecent exposure, those kinds of things. Yes, they are individual crimes, but yet to to prosecute a single case like that, it's it's a rare thing. So um, it is absolutely appropriate that we have other kinds of social sanctions. You know, the law, you can't prosecute prosecute your way out of this. Social sanctions and social norms are what governs um, behavior for all of us. So that's why we need employers and school districts and uh, sports teams. And, you know, we in some ways, like we need to police our own. We need to enforce the standards of conduct that are acceptable and not give a pass to this stuff no matter where you are and not expect that the police are the only answer. On the other hand, I've heard uh, several men uh, say in the last uh, few weeks since uh, this became so public uh, that they've done some of these things. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe not, uh, you know, of something that was criminal, right. but like touching or telling dirty jokes or making sexist remarks. Uh, it's been a wake-up call yep. for most of them that yep. have heard and was like, okay, you know, I, I don't know what I should do here. Should I apologize? Should I? What should I do? Yeah. Okay, so I ask I ask that question of you. I think there's nothing wrong with apologizing if you really mean it. You know, if that if that's a reasonable thing, you still know where the person is, or you, you know that the incident was um, monumental enough that they'll know why you're apologizing. There's nothing wrong with with saying you're sorry. Um, but I think what's more important is like what what are men going to do with that aside from that? So it's not just you know how can I. Uh, atone for what I've done in the past, but think about what is it that you're going to do from this day forward to set a better example. So how are you going to pipe up like when you're when your friends are engaging those kinds of behaviors or saying inappropriate things? Are you going to be the one to finally say, guys, that's not really funny, you know, and, and, and change the conversation? Um, are you going to set what kind of an example are you setting for the kids in your house? Um, are, are you donating to organizations that are dedicated to prevention. So, you know, there's there's things that people can do to be part of the solution to make sure that from this day forward, they're they're walking the walk the way that they want to be. That mm-hmm. that means more than uh, just saying you're sorry and then going on with your life and not thinking about it anymore. We want people to be part of changing uh, what we accept in this culture. We need everybody to, to be a part of that. You know, I, 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 I follow you on uh, social media, and I, I know, like last week, I think it was, that uh, you just you posted on Facebook about, uh, I can't keep up with all this. And I think that, uh, you know, now you're in a position where I'm sure there are a lot of people asking you about it. But I think the society kind of feels that way, that yeah. uh, every day there's a new one. And, and Yesterday, just here in the station, someone was saying, you know, I I won't be surprised anymore. This was after the Matt Lauer news Mm -hmm. came out. I won't be surprised anymore. And then 10 minutes later, the Garrison Keillor news. Okay, I have to admit, now I'm surprised again. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, I mean, do we get to a point where... 
because we're not surprised. I mean, I, I want to bring up a, another, uh, in, for instance, that uh, I have heard. Roy Moore, the Republican uh, senatorial candidate, that uh, read a story yesterday that said that uh, because there have been so many accusations against so many other men, that's kind of watered down the accusations against him mm-hmm. and actually helped him fight off those accusations. Yeah. 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 You know, um, I do think that oversaturation can numb people out and make them want to, you know, put their head in the sand. Um, I also think, though, that we're seeing this issue is not going to go away until we change our behaviors. Um, and I hope that what people can take away from from this this element of surprise is to realize that's part of the equation, that people, just because somebody appears to be trustworthy or has a public persona that's positive does not mean that they aren't capable of doing bad things as well. I, I hope that this helps us stop um, trying to, to lump people into boxes. You know, we you can't say that people are all good or all bad and you can't label them only for their bad behavior. Um, we need to have some some compassion and understanding. Humans are, are complex people. and We do make choices about the things we do in our life. So um, just being surprised, like, oh, gosh, I thought he was a good person. And, and now now he's a terrible person. No, maybe he's somebody who does good and bad things. And, and we, we need to get more comfortable with that if we're going to be able to um, to intervene when those seemingly, you know, positive people we like and trust when they do things that make us feel uncomfortable. You don't want to just give them pass. You want to recognize Recognize, nope, that could be important. Let's let's redirect that. Let's address it. Let's take a phone call from Sharon in Hamburg. Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I just wanted to bring up why we're talking about the entertainment industry and we're talking about business. There's a big um, uh, environment that goes on every day with women, and that's our female veterans. My daughter uh, was a female veteran in Iraq. She was uh, raped twice and sexually assaulted once. Nothing ever came of that except she was changed out of her unit. Military sexual trauma is one of the biggest factors of PTSD for women in the military. That's right. And it goes on every day. It's power. It's positional. And going to back to what Angela Lansbury said about women being beautiful, dressing themselves up. These women are all in camo. They're all dressed the same. Their hair, their hair is put up the same. Their makeup is uh, you know, monitored, their jewelry is monitored, and yet this goes on all the time. It's about positional power and uh, what, you know, what our male veterans are, are you know, propagating upon them, and, and it's a terrible situation, and we need to have that part of the conversation, too, when we're talking about uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. Sharon, how's your daughter doing? My daughter is amazing. She's, she's, she has severe PTSD to this day, and, uh, has issues going as simply as something to the mall because of the influence of people around her, and she doesn't feel in control. So it left a horrible mark on her, but she was one of many, many, many women that this has happened to. And uh, the military does not talk about it enough. And, um, you know, it's certainly positional power, and what are you going to do? Well, sorry to hear that uh, she went through that, but uh, I'm also glad to hear you say that, uh, you know, she's doing she's doing better. Thank you very much for your call. Sharon brings up a point that this was at one time one of those issues that was discussed nationally mm-hmm. that doesn't get as much attention now. Right, right. And, and she's totally right. I think that what we can take from that, you know, the military is still a, a very dominant male environment. So getting back to the, you know, well, do you apologize and what else do you do? That's a great example. If you have male leadership um, in in the military and within units, if, if people are sticking up for the right values and you, you build loyalty and unity around protecting a culture um, that's respectful and looks out for one another, that would help decrease that type of stuff that does happen in the military at, at huge rates. So that's an example of, um, you know, it, it may be hard for men to 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 voice up and, and stand up for women, but they need to start doing it because that does change what the norm is. And we need cultures like that to change. Uh, Kristen, we're almost out of time. So where do we go from here? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm going to just sound repetitive. Um we need to look at our own environments. We need to look at whether or not there are, if it's a, 
institutional kind of environment? Do we have the right policies and procedures in place? Are you getting good training? The training doesn't can't stop at just legal issues. It needs to be about standards of conduct, how we interact with one another, and creating cultures of accountability for infractions all along the continuum of sexual violence. We need to be empowering uh, managers and supervisors to take responsibility for that and uphold them when they do that. We, we need to make that part of the normal work environment, no matter what the setting is. Mm-hmm. Kristen Hauser is the Chief Public Affairs Officer for the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Kristen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You're on. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A recent investigative piece from the Reading Eagle uncovered a shocking amount of unreported abuse in Pennsylvania nursing homes. Between 2009 and 2015, the state's Department of Health received 1,800 reports of abuse in nursing homes. Three were reported to the state attorney general's office. None were prosecuted. Joining us is Reading Eagle investigative reporter Nicole Brambia. Nicole, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right, so let's talk about the kind of the genesis of uh, of this series. How did it come together? I've actually been working on it for more than a year. Back in December, we um, did a report looking at the deficiencies in nursing homes and how frequently nursing homes are dinged and pulling data going back 17 years because of the Attorney General's then um, lawsuit with uh, Golden Living, we were able to to ascertain that about half of the nursing homes in Pennsylvania had been cited for poor care in the past 17 years. And in going through that, that's when I discovered that very few, uh, when there's an issue, are referred to the Attorney General's office. Why? That's a really good question. Yeah, it's a short one, but it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had an answer. The Department of Health has um, not been very clear on this. In fact, uh, their uh, perspective is is that if they if they ding a nursing home for not um, calling police, for example, or notifying the other agencies, which also would include local adult protective services and the state um, uh, Department on Aging, they cite them. And then there's no follow-up. And uh, the Department of Health's uh, stance is, is that it's on the facilities to report. Um, there's no requirement, they say, for them to then notify the police. And then, you know, then there, even if police are, are notified, there's very little that's done in terms of follow-up on the state's uh, part to ensure that it's taken to the next step. Well, you kind of touched on this, but I want to clarify here. What is the actual protocol? What is the procedure for when there has been abuse in a nursing home? Well, there's two laws that we're dealing with here. One is in from 2010 with um, the overhaul of health care federally, and then there's state law. The state law deals with uh, neglect of a care-dependent person when there's some kind of a physical restraint or it could be a chemical restraint where they're over-medicating um, nursing home residents. They're required to report that. But um, federal law also requires when there's a crime, a suspected crime or suspicion of a crime committed against a nursing home resident. And what we found um, in looking at these reports, um, these are, again, from the Department of Health, is that, um, you know, the nursing homes uh, – will do an independent investigation, and then they'll say, oh, you know, nothing happened, so we don't have to report it. Or um, they won't report it at all. Some instances we found where, you know, a family member was notified or up in um, Schuylkill County, one of the uh, stories that we opened the the package with, uh, you know, somebody anonymously from the nursing home reported it. So, you know, it's troubling all around, and there's a lot of points um, in the process that the ball can get dropped. Well, let's talk about that Schuylkill County case because that's a, a good example of where it seems the system went awry. This happened in a nursing home in Pottsville, correct? Correct. So what happened? So um, workers went in, and this was documented with the Department of Health surveys, went in and they discovered a man at bedside of another man. In the bed was somebody who had, um, uh, I think it was an, some kind of accident where he'd had his, his mental faculties were disturbed. And um, they thought that they walked in on a sexual assault. They reported it up the chain as they're required to do, and they waited. They waited. Two days passed. Nothing happened. And then somebody called the police with an anonymous tip. When you say up the chain, okay, what do you mean? The the, the people who walked in on it, they reported it to uh, their In-house. their supervisors. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And so, what should have happened at that point? Well, 
they 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 did what they what they were supposed to do, but the the law doesn't let them off the hook because the law says that it, it's a facility and their workers. So, the the workers should have also notified the Department of Health, the Department of Aging, the police. Um, it's not. But what what ends up happening all too often, Scott, is is that they reported up the chain and the nursing home takes over it from there, and 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 then it, it may or may not. Uh, get referred to the Department of Health. In fact, many of these cases that we discovered, the reason why we discovered them is because they were in surveys in which the Department of Health comes out annually. They pull a bunch of um, uh, patient reports and, and documents, and they just reviewing them, and they happen to stumble into it and find this um, uh, example of something that didn't get reported to the Department of Health or aging or to, to whomever, and they cite the facility for that. So uh, uh, they're getting caught because... It's random. It's just by chance. And as you said, in that case, it was a family member, or, or no, it was an anonymous call. It was anonymous that call. was made to, uh, to to police. So, uh, aren't these people in who are you know not just the staff but uh, the administrators? Aren't they mandatory reporters? Yes, by state and federal law. In fact, they could be fined up to three hundred thousand dollars if they don't report. And I, I don't know whether that's new or not. Maybe you can tell us from your investigation. But, uh, you know, a lot of uh, mandatory reporting laws were expanded after the Jerry Sandusky case. Was this one of them or was this something that existed before? No, this was actually this is federal law. And it was uh, based on um, the, the overhaul of health care or Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Hmm. So actually in a nursing home, who has ultimate responsibility to report? And I'm assuming we're talking to police and, as you said, the Department of Aging and the Department of Health. Uh, ultimately, it's either the individual that discovers it and the, the facility. So ideally what would happen, like another example, not in Pottsville, but elsewhere, uh, a, a um, staff member walked in on um, a resident watching on their personal laptop child pornography and that staff member told um, the resident to turn it off and the resident just turned it down um, they were cited because um, inadvertently he was exposing his um, roommate uh, with, with whom he shared part of the room in a nursing home to this child pornography the the staff member even said to the um, the resident, listen, you, this is illegal. What you're doing is illegal, but nobody reported it. Um, so the staff member in this example that I just gave should have called the police and should have called the Department of Health. But instead, they didn't do anything. They just wrote it down in the documentation for that uh, patient. You know, I'm, I'm picturing, uh, you know, we, and we've talked about this on our program uh, m many times, Nicole, where, uh, you know, often people who work in nursing homes, the staff are not paid very well. There's a high turnover. It's a tough job. It is a really tough job. Are they trained to look for these things, are they trained that they're, they know that they're a mandated reporter and that they are to call the police, for example, uh, if they see something illegal going on? A lot of times, so the way that it works when, um, say, the Department of Health goes in and they find there's an issue with, with reporting, so the, the facility responds by saying um, in their plan of correction, listen, we're going to train our staff, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, we're going to review every time that this happens for the next three months. So a lot of a lot of times that's part of the plan of correction that they promise to the Department of Health that they moving forward won't have this problem again. Um, but one of the things that I found was I found a registered nurse who didn't know the difference between Adult Protective Services, which is a local agency, and the State Department of Aging, for example. So I, I think there's a wide variance in what people understand the law is. Mm. If you're just tuning in, our guest is Nicole Brambia, who she is an investigative reporter with the Reading Eagle. They did a really, a really great uh, series on uh, abuses in nursing homes across Pennsylvania. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at WITF. Again, that phone number, one 800 729-7532. All right. Now, you, as you point out in uh, your, your stories, Nicole, a lot of this information that you got was very difficult to obtain, that it's a very secretive pro process. And, I, you know, I know one of the, the issues here is 
HIPAA laws, privacy, all those things. But it is very difficult to obtain this information, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's a it's a colossal headache. We tried for over a six month period, at least three different right to know requests. Each of them were appealed to the Open Records, and Open Records had a different decision in each of those uh, cases. Um, and you can't even the long and the short of it is in Pennsylvania you can't even get numbers um, on this. So yeah, it's very secretive. Even the Department of Health spokesman April Hutchins, she wouldn't even tell me what if any supporting documents when a nursing home suspects that there is a crime against a, um, uh, a resident, what they're required to submit. So let's, so the Pottsville case, for example, let's say they, they had reported it, which they didn't. Um, it was, an, again, an anonymous report to police. But let's say they had reported it to um, the Department of Health. Um, do they have to submit in writing a document saying this is when we called the police, this is the um, police um, report that was filed in this case. We don't know that because they say it's so secretive that we can't even tell you what supporting documents have to be filed. Mm. Uh, You know, you would seem to, as I'm listening to this and when I read your stories, I was thinking, I have to admit that what it reminded me of in a lot of cases was, uh, you know, crimes that are committed on college campuses, that there would seem to be a real motivation for some of these facilities to not report these things because they don't want perspective residents or customers or clients seeing that uh, maybe there have been some some laws broken or that this may be not be a, a safe facility. Is that part of it? Hearing anecdotally back from uh, folks that are watchers of the industry, yes, that that's the issue. Uh, but on the other hand, if you get on the Department of Health website, just trying to to ferret out this information is it's it's lost in hundreds and thousands of these surveys. So I, I think it's an overblown fear. One and two in other states such as California, for example, all this information when it's substantiated um, is out there already. So you know the the uh, take on Department of Health is oh if if we make this public and we let you know people have this information then they'll stop uh, filing these required reports. Um, and I just don't see how that is uh, holds much water when you when you look that it's mandatory. It's mandatory reporting one. That's the law. But two, other states already require it to be public information. Let's talk about those other states. And you mentioned California. You actually quote uh, the lawmaker in California who was behind introducing some of the laws in that state. What did you find in California and some other states that's different than Pennsylvania? Um, just the reporting requirement. It's, just, it's much more transparent. Um, you can get information on the on the uh, facility. In fact, you can look up by facility and find uh, find if there was a substantiated report of abuse or neglect. And uh, if it's obviously if it's substantiated, it'll it'll tell you that. But it'll give you some more information about when and where. I mean, there's you're not going to find names or anything like that because of HIPAA as well. But you're getting a lot more information compared to Pennsylvania, where um, you know in some cases, like the Attorney General's office was completely blown away. They had no idea that the numbers were so high that there was 1,800 substantiated cases. Um, this yeah. is, there's many more cases that are. are are brought and not found to be substantiated. Only about a third are substantiated. So um, they were blown away by the numbers. So I, I, I think there needs to be much more transparency in, in terms of collecting this data. Well, you, you, you anticipated my next question. I was going to ask about that 1,800 cases. You're saying only a third. Uh, how do you come up with only a third that were substantiated? The Department of Health was required in one of our very first right-to-know requests that was made at the end of last year and was you know, litigated through open records at the beginning of this year. Uh, they did release statewide data, and that data was, was break, broken down by the number of abuse cases, neglect, theft, or other. And frankly, I don't even know what the other category entails. But And it, it told us how many were reported, how many were substantiated, and how many were unsubstantiated. And a third, it's, it's on average because it fluctuates from year to year, but about a third of these cases are ever substantiated. The vast majority aren't. So in this time period, and the time period corresponds to um, the time period that the Attorney General's, the previous office, had given me last December that they'd only received three cases from, I, I can't remember, up through 2015 at the time, um, that were ever referred to them by the Department of Health. We used that same time period to see how many just abuse cases, it wasn't even looking at neglect or theft, just how many abuse cases were substantiated, and that's where that 1,800 number comes But you mentioned that only three went to the Attorney General's office, but right. none, none were prosecuted. Do you know Correct. why? 
Uh, no, it, they didn't give me any information, and the the, the current uh, Josh Shapiro's um, office hasn't given me any other information on that. And there could be a lot of reasons uh, for that. We just don't know what they are. You got different responses from different police departments. Uh, you talked to some police departments that said, uh, you know, we want these reports. It's our job to investigate what could be a crime or if there is a s- suspicion of a crime. But then you found other police departments had no idea, uh, you know, how to deal with it. One of the reasons being uh, that uh, they felt that there were many older people who were living in these these nursing homes who were not good witnesses. So talk about the police, the police response, if you would. I I think they're difficult cases. Our own um, uh, district attorney here in Berks County uh, said it pretty succinctly that they're they're difficult cases. Sometimes we're dealing with an incapacitated person who has a guardian. Um, In other cases, we're dealing with memory issues, dementia, Whatnot. Although of the cases, uh, so we looked at more than a hundred, but we narrowed it down to um, a little, a little fewer than a two dozen cases in which, in the Department of Health surveys, they indicated that the abuse was, or suspected abuse was witnessed. Um, and in those 18 cases, then we went and identified the police departments and tried to find out exactly what happened with the, the suspected case. Um, and you know, what we found is, by and large, we're, we're talking about resident-on-resident resident crime. So it's not even the nursing home staff, although we did find some bad actors with, with staff. Um, the other thing we found is that largely it's a, a cognitive male with no dementia or Alzheimer's, for example, um, targeting a female who's somewhat impaired, whether she has dementia or Alzheimer's or whatnot. Um, and, and, and those kind of cases where the victim has Alzheimer's or dementia, it could be difficult to you know, build a case, but we're still talking about, at least in these examples, it was somehow witnessed in, in um, Schuylkill County is a very good example where there was an impaired victim, but the abuse was still witnessed. So you know, we're talking about, uh, this is not my words, it's a deputy um, a district attorney in Southern California who said it's laziness on the part of the police and prosecutors to not take you know, um, the extra steps to, to really put together a solid case. And part of that's training, which you can get from the Department of Justice. And part of it, I guess, would be knowing that the training is available and trying to avail yourself and your department of that. Well, let's talk about that training. Uh, what kind of training do police departments get in dealing with, uh, with people who may be a resident of a nursing home? You can, you can Google this online, Scott, and um, pull up Department of Justice, and they have, like, webinars online and, and other materials where they would tell you about how to, you know, identify um, suspected abuse cases and how to conduct um, investigations and, and witnesses and whatnot. And, um, and, and I, would, I would suspect that you could t- contact the Department of Justice directly and, and find um, other opportunities to, to get more one-on-one. But clearly, just the most simple thing doesn't cost you anything is to, to just get on their website and kind of poke around, as I did, to find out what's out there. Now, you said that, uh, you know, you, you heard from, I believe it was in San Diego, where a prosecutor said that uh, there were police departments who just uh, didn't take it seriously or, or were just downright lazy. But on the other hand, you did find police departments here in Pennsylvania, in fact, that said, we want to know about this if there is suspicion of a crime. And sometimes they weren't contacted, correct? Correct. And in fact, in one case, um, they they actually swung by the nursing home after what I did was, was I pulled up the reports from the Department of Health and I provided the police department with that report. And, um, you know, at least one police department followed up with the nursing home to, to see, you know, what had happened. They ultimately didn't do anything with it. I mean, I, I don't understand their thinking behind that, but at least they took that step that where they followed up. And, and that's the minimal, is, is, is notifying police. Whether police do something with it or not, that's on them. But at, le- at the very minimal, police should be notified. See, I, I have a question, though, Nicole, In as far as jurisdiction goes. We mentioned 1,800 substantiated cases by the state, three that uh, were recommended for prosecution. None were, were, were prosecuted. What about on the local level? I mean, do local district attorneys, do they have jurisdiction to prosecute these cases, or is it be, does it go directly to the state attorney general's office? 
Oh, no, 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 no. The vast majority of these are going to be prosecuted at the local level. The, the problem is, is that the state data was actually easier to get in this regard because a lot of um, district attorneys that I spoke with would say, listen, we don't, we don't track this, and you can't type into the computer abuse in nursing home and pull up a, a list of cases. Um, and a lot of them are dealing with, um, like, a, a very famous case that happened in, I guess, 2005 in Lebanon County uh, with the, the fakes home where, um, you know, you're dealing with a a smaller operation. It's not a nursing home. It's assisted living care in somebody's home. Um, So we're talking about a wide swath of these kinds of cases, not just nursing home, although I focus on nursing home. You you know, something I probably should have done right up front when we started talking uh, is you've used the term abuse, but under the law, there are like four different uh, things that where there should be mandatory reporting, Correct. Correct. We're talking about abuse, which would be sexual or physical in nature. We're also talking about theft when um, their money or belongings or even their medication. In one example, we found some some oxycodone pills were missing, um, and and then um, uh, and then also neglect. And I got to tell you that uh, just anecdotally, I understand that that theft does occur pretty often. Correct. Uh, but just looking at the 2016, for example. Um, you know, theft, um, and this, these are, again, substantiated cases, theft uh, uh, accounted for almost 15% of the, the cases where abuse, this is, again, physical and sexual assault, Scott, was 65%, and neglect about 22%. So, you know, the vast majority of these cases, at least last year, were physical and sexual in nature. Nicole, we only have about a minute left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. So those listening today, if they themselves or possibly uh, a family member uh, may be going into a nursing home, maybe already a resident of a nursing home, what can they do? Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot they can do because even if you get on the um, Department of Health's website, getting that information is is difficult. One of the things they could do is what we did, which is go to ProPublica has a searchable uh, website where you can actually um, type in the name of the facility or type in sexual assault or physical assault if you're looking at these specific things. Another thing is the government's um, uh, star rating system, which is uh, severely flawed, but it does give people some information. Um, The long and the short of it is it's not easy and you have to go to a lot of different um, you know, sites or agencies to try to piece together what's happening mm. in an individual nursing home. Reading Eagle investigative reporter Nicole Brambia, uh, want to thank you very much for being with us today and want to say that we will have a link to your stories on our website, WITF.org. Nicole, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, WITF Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer sits in the hosting chair. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality.